we were talking about <clears throat> that passage and the way that it begins <clears throat> before the first service. And, uh, what we were talking about was having Lewis come in and wear a, a placard board, you know, with the end is near on one side and something else on the other. There are a lot of jokes, a lot of teasing, a lot of humor, a lot of far-sight cartoons have been expended on that phrase. Here's the thing. This text begins with this very important, very sobering statement. The end of all things is near. <clears throat> and this, these words bring this section of 1 Peter to a close. How do you counsel people who have lost their livelihood? How do you counsel people? How do you help some of whom have lost their homes, for some their families, who are facing some persecution, maybe facing more intense persecution shortly? What would you say to them? Well, Peter has just said it. That's what he has been talking about. And today we close this segment of this book with these five amazing verses. And this passage that we're going to be looking at invites your intense concentration, your meditation, your application of what we see here. These are important verses. <clears throat> now, I want to begin with this question. How would you fill in the blank? The end of all things is near. Therefore, and then what would you say after that? Just, just think about that for a moment. The end of all things is near. Therefore, what would you say next? As I was reading and thinking <clears throat> for this uh, study today, I was reminded of, of uh, a book that was published in 1987 by Edgar Wisnott, who was a, national, uh, a NASA engineer. The book was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. As far as I could tell, uh, he was a humble man who wasn't trying to get rich off of a book. Uh, and at that time, our church was two years old, and there were some people who, a lot of people brought, bought copies and wanted to, and they did pass them around and asked if we, asked me if we could give them to everybody. We didn't have elders yet. I said, no, no. Um, but the book became quite a phenomenon in the evangelical world. But 19, 1988 started and then progressed and then ended. So in 1989, a second book was published explaining why he was off by one year, and it was entitled On Borrowed Time. And then 1989 began at, well, you know. He published two more books after that, predicting 1993 and then 1994. And then he went to be with Jesus. Peter is not telling us the end of all things is near in 2020, starting with a pandemic. Maybe. Maybe not. He simply states, the end of all things is near. And then follows with how we are to live. What are our marching orders? And really, if you think about it, what do these words even mean? What does he mean by near? Or are they nearly near? We don't know when Jesus will return. But I want you to pretend with me for a moment. 
that we did know that Jesus will return on November 3rd, 2020, and we have an absolute certainty of that countdown of 99 days between now and then. How would you change your plans? Would that affect anything? For example, would all spiritually sensitive students in medical school who are planning to go into medical missions, would all spiritually sensitive seminary students planning to go into pastoral ministry suddenly be informed by new leading of the Holy Spirit to leave those schools and engage in full-time evangelism up until November 3rd? So at that point, the seminaries would simply be populated by unspiritual students who are being taught by their unspiritual professors. Would the Holy Spirit even call someone into ministry for a three-year training program? Jesus, we're going to return in three years. Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that Jesus would return today. This was his answer. I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. His point being that we are to live every day in light of that day. We glorify God by doing ordinary things in light of his coming. And Peter tells us what those ordinary things look like. Now, the large segment of this epistle has extended from chapter 2, verse 11. This is the context to chapter 4, verse 11. It began in chapter 2. If you want to look at verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then the following two chapters expand on those themes up to the point where Peter now concludes with the same term glorify God, and then he ends this section with the doxology. Now, in the passage just previous to this that Lewis was studying over the last couple of weeks, Peter is writing to believers who were in, and reminding them they were being ridiculed for believing in Jesus' return when some of their own number had already died. Paul addresses this also in the Thessalonian epistles. And their argument was something like this, you know, what... What difference does Christianity make? We all die. And meanwhile, you've missed out on a whole lot of fun that you've denied yourself. But God has a very different view. C.S. Lewis expressed this well when he described our longing in one of his best-known insights from The Weight of Glory. He wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So here we are at this passage, and it begins with the term all things, and it ends with the term all things. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Verse 11, so that in all things God may be glorified. And in between those two bookends, we understand that we are to glorify God 
through four things. Prayer, love, hospitality, and service. Prayer, love, hospitality, and service. So let's unpack this text. And I'm going to begin with a statement about the end. The end is near. Let's talk about what that does mean and what it doesn't mean. First of all, the Greek word for end, tell us, does not always refer to the end of the world, kind of like what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. It doesn't always refer to that. It mostly refers to the end of a process. Here, it refers to a period of time, not a point in time. We're living in the last stage or span of time of God's redemptive plan. Peter used to get uptight about not knowing God's timetable. In the Gospels, he was always the one asking Jesus, now exactly when is this going to take place? Even after the resurrection, I'd be, I'd be surprised if Peter were not the one behind the question, Lord, is it exactly now that you're going to set up your earthly kingdom? But in Acts 1, 6 through 8, Jesus said, this is not for you to know. Here's what you are to know. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what you're to know. That's your mission. Pretty clear. Peter learned his lesson. So now, after the resurrection and the ascension, Peter simply states the end of all things is near, and that's as precise as he's going to get. Thank you very much. He says nothing about the pandemic in the year 2020. Here's the biblical perspective. We have been living in this bracketed period called the last days, ever since Jesus ascended. And I've said this before. Throughout the progress of time, from creation to the fall, through the plan, God's unfolding plan of redemption, it's like you're walking to the end of this, to this uh, stage or to the end of a cliff, on through to the New Testament. You continue towards that cliff where you've got the, the incarnate, they've got the John the Baptist being announced that, and born, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of our Lord, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then you reach the point in time, which is his ascension. And that's the end of the cliff. That's the end of it. And at that point, you are now in the last days. And you suddenly turn, and you're walking along the edge of that cliff until you reach the end of the end. We are in the last days. That's how the New Testament describes the entire period from the, resur- from the ascension of Jesus until his return. So, basically, Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, These things, and he's referring to Old Testament events, happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Now, our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is the last days. That's what Paul's saying. We are in this period of time. But he also reminds us that there will be an end of the end. Paul says, now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So when Peter says... The end is near. That's not less true today than when Peter wrote it. It's more true today than it was then. And here's another important perspective that I think we need to 
gather from the next epistle. I want you to hold your place in 1 Peter chapter 4 and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. This gives us a more complete picture about how God views time and how we should understand what it means to be in the last days. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, so and this happened in Peter's lifetime, so they were in the last days then, and guess what? It's happening now. We are in the last days now. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then he tells them, eh, well, they don't know their Bible. They failed to notice that God destroyed the earth with its sin for his period of judgment known as the flood. And he says in verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. And then he says this in verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Now, Peter is not giving us a divine human chronology ratio. A day for God is a thousand years for us. That's not what he's saying. He, what he is saying is that one day for God is like a thousand years for us. And a thousand years for God is like one day for us. In other words, the point is that God is not bound by time as we are, nor, nor does he view time the way that we do. He is both outside time and inside time. And the point is, we are to trust him with our chronological uncertainties because any delays, he says, are tied to God's larger redemptive plan. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now let's back up to the previous uh, book, to chapter 3, uh, to chapter 4 rather. So, what does he ask of us in the meantime? The end is near, therefore glorify God with four things, prayer, love, hospitality, service. Let's take a look at those four things. Verse 7 says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So, the end is near, therefore pray. Before the resurrection, the followers of Jesus, and especially Peter and the apostles, were not really known for their deep prayer lives. But after Jesus ascended, well, it was different. In Acts 1.14, Jesus ascended, so the disciples started gathering for prayer. Acts 1.24, they needed a replacement for Jesus, so they pray. Acts 2.42, after Pentecost, they devote themselves to prayer. Acts 3, they continued to go up to the temple. Why? To pray. Acts 4, they were beaten and warned off by the authorities. So therefore, they prayed. Acts 6, there's a cross-cultural inter, uh, uh, internal problem within the church. So they came together and prayed. And then they selected deacons. And what did they do? They laid hands on them and 
afraid. You get in the picture here. It's a different picture than what we see before Jesus ascended. But Peter qualifies prayer here. He could have simply said, the end of all things is near, therefore pray. But he adds two qualities. Pray with sound judgment and with sober spirit. Because as Peter learned the hard way, these two qualities will help you pray. Here's what I mean. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus was enduring his spiritual agony, Jesus came to the disciples, I'm reading from Matthew 26, and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter in, into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This happened three times. Lots of things happened three times with Peter. So, sound judgment, what does that mean? It's the same word that's used of a qualification for elders. It means level-headed, but especially in regard to self-evaluation. Romans 12, 3 says, Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. That's the same term. It refers primarily to your opinion about yourself based on reality, not fantasy. You look around, and you look at this COVID-19 world, you look at the economy, you look at racial unrest, you look at problems in your own life, and am I sufficient for these things? No. Therefore, I pray. I pray in light of the fact that I need Him. And if you begin to think that you are sufficient if you don't pray... The assumption is that you can manage your own problems and fix them and you don't need him. But if you do have that sound judgment, you're you're not all that impressed with yourself and your abilities to fix your problems, then you pray. This is prayer from a place of both acknowledgement and dependency. The second term, sober spirit, literally it's the idea of not being a sleepy drunk. In the garden, instead of praying, Peter slept. Ever wonder how much he imbibed at the Last Supper? Well, the thing is, the idea of a sober spirit does not have to be alcohol. The meaning is, don't let other things control your mind so that your focus is clouded and prayer gets displaced. If all you do in these times of COVID-19 and being at home much more, if all you do is watch YouTube videos or play video games or become absorbed in political news. If that's all you're doing, you're letting other things displace your focus on prayer. But when you pray, when you do pray, with sound judgment about who you are before God and your needs, who He is, with sober spirit that doesn't crowd out uh, prayer, those prayers are a part of what He says glorifies God. In fact, the word prayer here is plural, prayers. But Gary, my prayer life kind of stinks. It's not all that good. Need some help here. Okay. Not a mystery. In fact, great examples in Scripture. Start with Matthew uh, 6, the Lord's Prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. So he does. Pray that. That's a great start. 
Or go to Ephesians 1 or Philippians 1 where Paul says, and this I pray. And there are some prayers that you can pray. Do that. That, that, That's a great way to start. There are other passages with recorded prayers. Let, Let me suggest that you take 20 minutes this afternoon and go to an online Bible concordance and type in the word prayer and just start reading the verses in the Gospels about prayer. I think think you'd spend a lot more than 20 minutes. You'd just get enthralled in that. See what that... It's just an easy way to see what that's like. Start there. Men, every Wednesday morning, Damon has challenged us uh, at 6.33 to meet at the throne. M-A-T-T, Matt. Matt, 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And he gave a list of five things to pray for. So you, he'll give that to you again if you, if you didn't keep that. So that's another way to engage in prayer for one another as well as for your family and our world, both inward and outward and upward. Let me suggest something else. First um, Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. And that's one of three things that Paul explicitly says This is God's will for you. Do you want to know what God's will for you is? Pray without ceasing. That's what that is. So what does that look like, praying without ceasing? Develop the practice of ongoing conversation with God throughout the day. You get up in the morning. Good morning, Lord. A few minutes later, Lord, thank you so much for creating the coffee bean. Lord, You're driving. Lord, please protect that kid who just passed everybody on a motorcycle and is weaving in and out. And if he hits gravel and a curve, he's dead. Please protect that kid. He's somebody's son. Um, Just the ongoing attitude. Lord, somebody comes to your mind. Uh, Lord, be with my cousin who's ill. Give her a good day. Um, Lord, be with Lewis. Give him a great day. Lord, um, be with my friend, Jeff Messenger, who has health problems. Lord, be with my friend, Tom Paul, in in, in Canada with cancer, who just got a good report on his blood work. Thank you, Lord. Just all those kinds of things. You could print off a list of people on the SMBC website, uh, on on Breeze, rather, and just pray for five a day. That would be a great way to engage. Or pray for the people in your growth group. Don't limit the scope of prayer just to the people that you know. You see people on the news. Lord, that woman whom I cannot stand, (laughs) help her to see her need of you. Bring her to to yourself. Or help me to see her differently. Or maybe, Lord, help me to turn off the news. (laughs) Uh, Have an ongoing conversation. Uh, Lord, our land has so many afflictions. Please heal our land. Uh, Go outside. Start a conversation. Lord, this is a beautiful day. Thank you. Lord, thank you for the rain. We need it. I don't think there's been a single time that I haven't walked down to our pavilion that I haven't thought, Lord, thank you so much for our pavilion 2.0. And how how blessed we are with this. Just that always pops into my mind. What a blessing that is. So so it's not, I don't know 
what to pray for. It's really, I don't know what not to pray for. Pray without ceasing. And like marriage, prayer is work. What if you don't feel like it? Well, what if you don't feel like being nice to your spouse? You do it anyway. <clears throat> and here's the thing. Um, it does take discipline to develop the spiritual habit to pray without ceasing. We are in such a different place than any of us thought that we would be on January 1st, 2020. Prayer will get us through this better than before. Because at the end of this, we're going to long for each other. And we're going to understand what it means to be together in, in the preciousness of our times together. It's all going to mean more to us. It's going to be deeper, I think. And, and one more thing. Prayer is not only for our benefit, because for some reason, the God of the universe, the creator, the Lord of heavens, the sovereign Lord, wants to hear from you. He wants you to commune with him in prayer. The prodigal son had no clue how much the father wanted to hear from him. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And doing that glorifies God. So the end is near. Therefore, glorify God through four things, prayer, love, hospitality, and service. Now, I'm hovering over the first two a little bit longer. So I've hovered over prayer. I want to hover over love a little bit longer than the last two as well. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So the one another, he's talking about other Christians here. Because, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. This is the first of three one another's in our passage. And I, I want to interview this verse by asking it three questions. Here's my first question. What does Peter mean by adding the words above all? They don't have to be there. Why did he add them? Well, actually, it just shows that Peter places the same priority on love that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. I hear it through your masks. <laughs> the greatest of these is love. The same priority that Jesus placed on love when he said that the greatest commandment is to love God, love your neighbor. And it's how we show the world that we belong to Jesus. By this shall people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's why he adds, above all. Secondly, why does he, why does he say keep fervent? Keep fervent in your love. Well, the word fervent is actually a word picture. It describes an athlete running a race, stretching and straining to the finish line. That's the picture of it. The idea is it assumes discipline and, and focus and effort. And, and the fervency is not about emotional intensity, but about intensity of commitment. A love that holds on when it's hard because of your commitment to the other person and even more because of your commitment to Jesus. If your commitment to love is tied only to the other person, then there are going to be times when you don't feel like they're worthy of your commitment. 
But if your commitment is tied to Jesus, that's a different universe. Period. We love because he first loved us. That's, that's a deep blessing that's here for us. I have another question, a third question I want to ask of these, this, this verse. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? I mean, we know, even from 1 Peter, that love doesn't cover up sins. We know from other scriptures that love doesn't condone sins or gloss over them, especially, especially sins that are self-destructive or harmful to their family or to the church. So what does it mean for love to cover a multitude of sins? I think the clue is found in the proverb that Peter is quoting, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but lover, love covers all sins. And the poetic parallelism here contrasts love with stirring up strife, which, which what that means is broadcasting the other person's sins to everybody so that you expose them, you hurt them. Why? Because you can. Because it feels good to you. Maybe it makes you look better by contrast. Instead, what he's telling us here is somebody sins against you and, he, and we're not talking about self-destructive, body-destructive sins. But when these things happen, you choose to let it go. That's a choice that you make. And when you let it go, you let it die. You don't let it become a pet peeve. You know the pet peeve that you take out and pet? No. Instead, especially in times of persecution, when people are trying to destroy the church from the outside, don't contribute to the destruction of the church from the inside. Matthew 18 says this. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Peter thought he was being generous. Jesus said, no. Seventy times, seven times. Wait a minute. Excuse me. Exactly who did Jesus say that to? Peter. This guy. He got it. We have been forgiven. Therefore, we forgive. Paul said in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. By the way, that brings an illustration to us, before us, that is a part of God's revelation to, about our relationships. He is our Father. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted children of God because we have placed faith in Him to save us from our sins. So we are His children. And this is God's analogy. Sometimes our children are loud, boisterous, underfoot, annoying and I, I know I'm speaking of my children not yours right yours would never I, I know but mine sometimes yeah so you learn you learn to distinguish between immaturity 
and defiance. There are some sins you choose to let go and address later at a teachable moment. Meanwhile, you train them gradually, slowly, patiently. I told you the story before. When, um, when my son David was a baby, he was uh, 11 months old. This day, I was changing his diaper. I had him on the changing table and changing his diaper. And he was laying there with his favorite toy. His favorite toy was a large plastic serving spoon. And he banged that thing everywhere. He just, that, I mean, he, he had great toys. But the serving spoon, the plastic serving, that was a thing. And so he was banging that on the table while I was changing his diaper. And then he looked at me and he thought, that looks good to hit. So he started, he took the, and he started banging on me, you know. And I said, and he knew what no meant. So I said, David, no. And he stopped. And he looked at me. And he never broke eye contact. He took the spoon. And that little sinner turned it backwards. I don't know why. And then took it and touched me. The only thing that you can do is blow on his tummy, right? <laughs> so, you know. Uh, when patterns become persistent rebellion, and they, you know, we have to address those. But little things, you can blow on your tummy. You can, you, you choose to let them go. You choose to overlook them. And I have a, a question for parents. Have any of you parents of teenagers ever experienced this unique phenomenon? I, pro probably you haven't, but this unique phenomenon that I've heard of where your teenage children, after you say something, roll their eyes? Has that ever happened? Okay. Or have a bad attitude towards you over the fact that you have kept them fed, clothed, and alive for 15 years. We always love them, even though there may be times when we don't like them. I give my parents all kinds of grief. But parents know that ideally kids grow out of those things, and they mature. One day, even though they will always be your child, they will become your dearest friends. These are the deepest and most precious friendships that Betsy and I have. We would do anything for them, and they would do anything for us, and we know that. Now, it doesn't always happen that way because children make their own choices. But I think that's God's plan for how it should be. But in this process of maturing, as you teach and as you train, love covers a multitude of sins. Even the ones that really were personal and hurtful, but you choose to let it go because you love it. That's what love does. So let's expand this family analogy to the family of God because that's another biblical picture. We make the choice to let things go among ourselves that are signs of spiritual immaturity that we hope they will shed in time. 
1 Corinthians 13 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Never fails. Love doesn't destroy a church. Love unites a church. Colossians 3 says, beyond all these things, this is what Paul says, listen to this, beyond all these things. What are the these things? Well, if you read in the context, here are the these things. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, the reason why I've been hovering over these two qualities um, is prayer and love is because they are part of the most, one of the most important parts of the message for us. And these days, tempers can be short. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very unhappy about not being able to be with you in the same ways as we were before. When this is over, I, I trust that it will be in a substantial way. I want a hugging line. I mean, I, I just miss that contact with you so much. A lot of communication these days is done in strange ways, in different ways, in ways that can be misunderstood. You can understand, misunderstand written words more than, than spoken words. And even the words over the phone, you can't see gestures. And Zoom doesn't communicate everything. Uh, so there are, there are problems uh, with, with communication. And there are times when we make choices not to be offended by something that we thought we heard. Let's say Mary Alice offends Beverly without knowing it. Yeah. Since Mary Alice and Beverly are not in our church, I can use them. It was a Zoom meeting, and it was followed by a text, and Mary Alice said something that was hurtful or tactless that really Beverly took personally. Now, Beverly is a mature Christian, and uh, she, she starts to think through this. Okay, is this a repeated offense that will hurt future relationships uh, for uh, Mary Alice? If I don't address it, uh, is, is this something that she'll grow out of as she matures? Is, is this, do I even have a level of trust with her to address this yet? Or could this possibly be a personality quirk where she kind of grates on me and I don't like it? Uh, and it's not really a sin issue? What Beverly should not do is go to her Zoom prayer meeting and ask for prayer for Mary Alice's immaturity, for her annoying habits, and prayer that it won't bother other people as it did bother her, or at least it had bothered her before she wrestled deeply with God in prayer and got the victory. But you all pray for her, okay? And share that prayer request with others, too. Now, I'm giving kind of a cartoonish ending to this scenario to make a point, love covers a multitude of sins. If Paul can look at other preachers in Rome who were intentionally trying to cause him distress in his imprisonment, and he can make the choice to let that go, then there are a lot of things <laughs> that we can let go. But when we let it go, we let it go. 
The end is near. Therefore, glorify God through four things. Prayer, love, hospitality, and service. Verse 9 says, be hospitable to one another. That's our second one another in this text. And he adds the words, without complaint. Hospitality actually is a compound word. Literally, it means love of strangers. And the very word means love of strangers. And just as love requires effort, hospitality requires effort. That's why Peter adds, without complaint. He knows us well. Don't give in to the temptation to begrudge hospitality or charity to others. Now, most commentators point out as they interpret this verse that there were no hotels, there were few inns in those days, no hotels, and especially in times of persecution, it was important for traveling believers to have a safe place to stay. That is true. But don't draw the wrong conclusion. A wrong conclusion would be that now, because we have motels and because we don't have any immediate persecution, this no longer applies to us. Wrong. The application is not tied to the situation. The word hospitality, as it came to be used, also included being hospitable to believing friends in the same town. That's why I think the term one another is used. In the epistles, we read of churches and groups of Christians that met in people's homes. Paul called them growth groups. He told Titus to call them Titus too. I'm messing with you. But Peter's point is that when it comes to your own resources, lodging, food, caring for the needs of one another, as believers, live like this, with an open hand, not, not like this. Live with an open hand. And it's true that Peter is speaking of hospitality during the times of persecution. But if anybody starts to think and rationalize, you know, I will, I will have the courage to start practicing hospitality when persecution comes and the need intensifies. I'll do it then. You're lying to yourself. If you're not practicing hospitality when the cost is low, you're not going to practice it when the cost is high. Wait a minute. There's an elephant in the room. Gary, we're living in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic and you're talking about hospitality. Exactly what are you saying? Well, first of all, this is not going to last forever. I believe this will be over. But here's the deal. Some of you have been very creative in showing hospitality with meals, with yard visits, uh, care baskets, on and on. So let me suggest that you combine the command to hospitality with the command to pray and ask the Lord what hospitality, what love of one another would look like for you right now in this time. The end is near. Therefore, glorify God through prayer, love, hospitality, and service. Look at verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, I'm going to read it correctly. The word special is not in the original text. Is As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. I'm going to pause right there. Finish the verse in a sec. 
Peter may have spiritual gifts in mind here, but he doesn't actually say that. Uh, whatever he's referring to as gifts, they are manifold. So whether he's talking about gifts that are ours from birth, our natural abilities, or from our rebirth, our spiritual gifts that come as, uh, from the Holy Spirit, both of those are from God. What are they for? They're to serve one another as stewards of God's grace. And we could just stop right here and do a whole series on, on, the, on the natural gifts and on spiritual gifts. This just would be a great study. But Paul, Peter right here divides these gifts broadly into two categories, speaking and serving. Whether it's spiritual gifts or natural gifts, any impact, any impact that's eternal is going to be enabled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, every single time when you go through the book of Acts and people were said to be filled with the Spirit, they were filled with the Spirit, they were filled with the Spirit, every single time, they were either witnessing, speaking, or serving. Witnessing or serving. Or both. But they were doing God's work in Jesus' name. So he uses speaking and serving gifts. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word, speaking, or indeed serving, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, through him, to God the Father. So if you have a speaking gift, you're naturally gifted in communicating. You may be gifted at teaching or preaching or encouraging or evangelism. There are very few Billy Grahams around, but there are a lot of people who are gifted at evangelism. And besides, it's the Holy Spirit that produces that work. We're all supposed to evangelize anyway. So whatever you're gifted at, some people do it very naturally. Uh, and I believe, for example, that um, speaking tied with serving would include things like Sunday school teachers or uh, vacation Bible school teachers or counselors. Speaking gifts convey the truth of God's word to people. And when, people, when Peter says they're to be exercised as one who is speaking the utterances of God, he doesn't mean that they're receiving new revelation from God. But as they are speaking God's word, they're proclaiming truth. They're not mishandling truth. So what, I, what I'm getting at is I am now accountable at this moment, right now, right now, right here. I'm accountable to God for how accurately I'm explaining this verse to you so that I do speak the words of God to you. Serving would include gifts of administration, showing mercy, giving, helping. Also, I think they would include things like um, reading to someone. Listening, making meals, delivering meals, spending time with lonely people, taking somebody to the doctor, and on and on, just all kinds of possibilities. There are lots of ways that we can serve one another in this time of COVID-19. One of our uh, church members said this, and this is someone who, whose life has not been easy, said this week, quote, God has given so many gifts, it feels ungrateful if you don't use them. Exactly. And there may be a logical sequence in this passage. I want you to think through how everything is connected. Think with me about this. If our minds are fixed on the fact that we are living on purpose in the last days, the final period of God's redemptive plan, our minds will be centered on prayer, which focuses on God's grace and love, which should produce the kind of love in us that overlooks slights, a love which will open our homes and our resources and in our service to others will both show 
and speak words that are consistent with God's word, all of which is enabled by his spirit, and we will glorify him. It all fits together. The end is near. Therefore, glorify God with prayer, love, hospitality, and gifts, service. I mentioned that this passage begins and ends with the term all things. And now verse 11 concludes, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The point is God tells us what glorifies him. Prayer, love, hospitality, service. How, how does that work to his glory? I mean, I don't know how glory works. We, I don't know if I need to know. We don't increase his glory as though he's lacking and gains some from us as if glory were a tangible substance that could be quantified and increased by addition. Here, Lord, you have X glory units. Here are these four things. Now you have X plus four. Now, that's, that's absurd. We don't intensify his glory as though he is less and then becomes more, less in the sense of lacking. I, I don't have the spiritual or mental equipment to know how this works. It's true. Now we see through a glass darkly. I certainly do. But I do know that the Bible talks about it a lot. <laughs> Betsy reminded me that in the Sermon on the Mount, we were talking about this passage, and, and when Jesus said, others will see your good works, what do they do? They glorify your Father who is in heaven. Does that mean that they see your good works and then they turn to God and say, God be glorified? Or in the act of seeing your good works, God is glorified. That's my kid. I'm not sure how it works. I do know that he is glorified when we sing of him, when we listen to his word, when we obey his word, and specifically when we are engaged in prayer, love, hospitality, and service. The end of all things is near. So what do you do? Who do you tell? How do you live? God's answer, whether it's in peace or persecution, whether it's in plenty or in famine, where it's in peril or in safety, where it's in a shipwreck, in a prison, in health, in a pandemic, God's answer is do what you've always been supposed to do. Live the way you've always been supposed to live. Speak the truth in the way you've always been supposed to speak. In 1959, Queen Elizabeth visited Chicago and stayed at the very famous Drake Hotel. The manager was asked by the news, by uh, the media, a newspaper, uh, Chicago Tribune, what special preparations he was making for that visit. His reply was perfect. He said, we are making no plans for the queen. Our rooms are always ready to receive royalty. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were always ready to receive the king? The end of all things is near. Therefore, glorify God in prayer, in love, in hospitality.